So long story short, the Bible in 13 weeks, this seems like a, not a very smart idea, does it? Uh, how on earth are we going to do this? I thought it was a good idea until I started preparing the sermon for this week. And, uh, you know, next week we're in Genesis 12, and a lot happens in Genesis 1 through 11. So uh, we'll see how this kind of all plays out. I remember, uh, you know, hearing a story about a little girl who was drawing a picture in her kindergarten class, and the teacher asked her what she was drawing, and she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher says, well, that's sweet, honey, but uh, no, nobody knows what God looks like. And she says, they'll know when I'm done. <laughs> and I, I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver in the sermon series, uh, but I hope that after 13 weeks, uh, we can paint a better picture uh, than maybe we currently have in our minds of what God is like. And the Bible is a complex book. It's full of different genres. It's full of, you know, it has history books. It has prophetic books. It has uh, songs and psalms and letters and love letters and all sorts of crazy stuff and books, apocalyptic literature. And it's, it's not an easy book to read. And it's a book that was written by 40 authors over three different continents, three different languages, 15 centuries. It's a complex book. It's a book that claims itself that it was inspired by God. There are over 40 human authors that range from farmers to fishermen to poets to prophets to kings, shepherds, generals. It was written in caves, written in prisons and palaces. Hundreds of different controversial topics. It's filled with history that can be historically verified. It's filled with science. It's filled with every subject matter that we can think of. It's an amazing book. The most amazing thing about this book is that it reads like one story. And that's perhaps one of the most phenomenal things about it. Over uh, 1,500 years this book was written. And yet from beginning to end, God weaves a story from the start to the finish. It's what sets it apart from other religious literature, which are often written by one author or, or maybe at most a few. But there's tons of different authors that have contributed to the story that God has been writing since the beginning of history. And so as a book that, you know, we come and we talk about, we teach about every single Sunday, we felt like it was probably a good idea to spend a little bit of time on what the story actually is. This is what it, the Bible claims about itself. All Scripture is, what does it say? Inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. Now this word inspired, it's a fascinating word. The Greek is theonoustos. Everybody say theonoustos. Paul was writing this, and Paul was trying to describe Scripture for us, and there wasn't a word that existed, so he made up this word. Have you ever, had, have you ever made up a word? You're like, I really, you just, you just make it up. This is what Paul does. He's like, I don't know, I'm just going to make up a word. I guess he's writing the Bible so he can do whatever he wants, but he takes this idea 
And he takes two words, God and breathed, pneuma, which is the, the word for, that we have for breath and spirit and wind. And he basically said, Scripture has been breathed by God. It's been, our translations often say inspired, which almost gets there, but it's saying God breathed it. God, through his spirit, brought it about. And scholars kind of take us and they make fancy words and they talk about inerrancy and infallibility and all that kind of stuff. What scripture claims about itself is that it was breathed by God. And we're going to talk about the creation story this morning, but I wonder where Paul gets that idea is that in the creation story, God breathes into Adam to bring him life. God breathed. It also says, the, the author Heather says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. What does this mean? This basically means that you don't read the Bible as much as the Bible reads you. It's a dangerous book. You know, if, if you want your life just to kind of stay the same and stay comfortable, don't read this book. It's a powerful book. This book has, has, gave, has given people that were on the bottom rung of society hope for revolutions throughout history. It's given people the faith to believe a different story about themselves than maybe the story that's been told to them. But it's also a book that's been manipulated by those in power to continue to oppress those who are being oppressed. The same book. How we read the book matters. How we understand the story matters. And we need to allow the story of the Bible to actually read us. How, how many people in the room have perfect vision? Anybody have perfect vision this morning? Maybe a couple of people. Okay, how many of you guys need uh, glasses or contacts in some form? Put up your hand nice and... Okay, I, I, remember, I remember not thinking that I needed glasses. I not thinking I needed contacts. You know, I was playing volleyball, junior high, high school, in, in, in grade 10. I, you know, I was a, I was a striker, and I, you know, I, I just kept trying to spike the ball, and I, it wasn't like quite connecting with my hands. And my, my coach, Coach Riley, said, do you need glasses? I said, well, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, and so I went to the optometrist, and sure enough, I needed glasses, but I couldn't wear glasses while I was playing volleyball. And so they gave me contacts so I could see properly. The problem is I couldn't put my own contacts in my eyes because it hurt so much to touch my own eyeball. And so I would, no word of a lie, I would bring my contacts to volleyball games, and before the game started, Coach Riley would get me in front of the mirror. He would take the contact out and stick it in the eye, and I can remember like, just like crying and bloodshot eyes and like going on the volleyball court, like that hurt. Um, but amazingly, I just started hitting the ball way better because I, I could actually see it. I could actually see what was happening on the court. Our perspective matters. If we're going to read a dangerous book like this, how we read it, the things that, the lenses that we read through are incredibly important. And so I'm going to talk about a few lenses this morning that we need to read Scripture with. And then I'm going to get into the beginning of the story. It's a lot that we're going to cover. And I'm going to go quickly. And I have a hunch 
Um, I haven't prepared all 13 weeks of the series yet, just so you know, but I have a hunch uh, that I'm going to have a continual struggle in this series to, to figure out what to say and what not to say because there's so much to say. But um, we're going to be skipping stones through the biblical story. You can think of it a bit more like looking through a telescope versus a microscope. We don't have the time to get into it with a microscope, uh, but we are going to look at it with a telescope. Context. It's the first lens I want to talk about. The context of the people that were in Scripture, the authors that were writing, but also our context, their context. Their people 2,000 to 4,000 years ago are much different, believe it or not, than we are today. You believe that? They're, you know, sometimes we, we don't understand that. We, we, we think that people like us wrote this book. They weren't like us. They're far different than us. They had a different worldview. They came from a polytheistic worldview, which means that the, the world around just believed in many gods. So this whole idea of a monotheism of one god was, was just this countercultural, crazy idea. Scripture is written from the vantage point of the underdog, the weak, and the oppressed. That's who Scripture was written by and written for. And when we think about our context... We are modern people, two to 4,000 years later. We think in modern ways. We think in scientific ways. We think, uh, we think empirically, which, just, which basically means we try and figure out, we try and verify truth by proving it scientifically. It's like we want to put the Bible in a Petri disc or under the microscope to figure out if it's true, but that is not the worldview that people wrote it under. We have more of a monotheistic worldview in the West. We, have, we are atheistic in our culture. We are middle and upper class Westerners. And maybe you feel like you're not that rich, but statistically, everybody in this room is very, very rich. Everybody in this room has benefited from power and wealth. So when we come to a book a story about the underdog, for the underdog, as people in power. Modern people, reading a book that was written in pre-modern times, we have to understand the context, that the world that they lived in, and we have to understand our context, what we bring to the text. A really fancy word for this is called hermeneutics. Everybody say hermeneutics. It's, uh, you're never going to use that word again in your life, but um, if you ever hear it, just so you know, it's like the science of how you read Scripture. Modern people came up with it. We've got to figure this out. We've got to make it into a science. And this is why when we approach the... Well, anyways, that's a rabbit trail. I've got to keep going. Community. That's the, 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 this is the other the lens that we need to have when we come to Scripture. The printing press was only, it's only like 500 years old. Individual Bible study, devotional life. You know, we talk about that all the time, and it's very, very important and we kind of view that as sitting down with our Bibles and our couch drinking our coffee. That's a new thing in history. People came together around the Word because not every individual had copies of the Bible. The Reformation that happened 500 years ago, the whole reason that that happened was because individuals started reading the Bible for themselves and were thinking, hey, those in power, they kind of lied to us. The Bible doesn't exactly say that. 
But throughout history, people have come to the scriptures in community. Why? Because we all have our individual lenses. And what happens when someone who's poor reads the Bible with someone who's rich? What happens when a male reads the Bible with a female? What happens when the businessman, the the white-collar guy, reads the Bible with the blue-collar guy? We start to see different things in Scripture together. And so we need to come to the Scriptures in community with one another because the fullness of it actually comes out as we do it together, and that's the way they've done it throughout history. Now, I'm going to get into some bigger words here. Don't be scared. Christocentric. Everybody say Christocentric. And Christotelic. Christotelic. Basically, what these words mean. SunWest comes from a faith tradition and a history of reading the scriptures Christotelically or Christocentrically. And telos basically means the goal. And so you can guess what the meaning of the, the word Christotelic means. It's like the goal of scripture is Jesus. The idea of Christocentricity is the same type of idea that, that Christ is actually all throughout Scripture. He's the centerpiece of the story. Let me show you what I mean. And the reason that this is important is because this actually informs how you read the whole thing. And as we go through 13 weeks of the Bible, my hope, you know, this is aspiration, but I hope we can do it, is... We're going to look at how Jesus is a part of every part of the story. How the fullness of scriptures actually point towards him. In Hebrews 1, it says, In the past, God spoke to us through, to our ancestors through the prophets, and at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Who was there at the beginning of the universe? Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The writer of Hebrews is saying, in the past, we kind of heard things from the prophets, and we didn't know it at the time, but the whole thing was moving towards the revelation of Jesus. And now that we understand who he is, we recognize that he was actually there in the beginning. In John 5, Jesus himself says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. This Bible is important to me, to us, but the Bible is not the point. You know, sometimes people want to find a church that just, you know, you got to preach the Bible. If the Bible does not lead you to the feet of Jesus, we're not handling the Bible properly. Jesus said, the whole purpose of this book was actually to bring you to me. I'm the goal. I'm the telos. I'm, I'm the direction that this whole thing was headed. In Luke 24, after Jesus' resurrection, I love this, Jesus took them through the writing. So he appears to some people on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. And so they start talking to him. And as they're talking to them, they start to realize that it's Jesus. And it says that Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures. What scriptures? All the scriptures. Not just the gospels. 
not just the writings of Paul, but all the scriptures from Genesis on, all the things concerning himself. So here, here's how it works. We, we, we have the Word of God. And the written Word of God points us to the living Word of God, who is Jesus. And so what happens is as they understand that Jesus was actually the Word of God, Jesus takes them back into the Word of God, and now they start to see things they've never seen before. You see how it works? The Bible points us to Jesus, and then Jesus actually becomes our guide as we go back into the Old Testament, and we read it with new eyes, and we, we recognize what God's been doing all along. So Jesus is going to be our guide as we go through these 13 weeks. Here's some verses that talk about that, the centralness of Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. Christ is fully God. You want to know what God looks like? You look at Jesus. John 1. And we're going to come back to John a couple of times this morning. Uh, because John, in the, in the book of John, creation is, is a theme from the beginning to the end of the gospel of John. And we have the creation story in Genesis 1, which we're going to look at. But John actually starts with his own creation story. And he says, in the beginning, which is how Genesis 1 will start. In the beginning, the word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning. The Word is a person. God created everything through Him. Nothing was created except through Him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and, this, and His life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So you hear echoes of the creation story, and you'll see that in a second. No one, from Adam to Abraham to David to Moses, no one has actually ever seen God, but the unique one, who is himself God, and, and, and the, the Greek word there that says unique one, it, it, it's actually two combined words, mono and Genes, where we get the word genes from. One genes, the same genes as God. The unique one who is himself God, the same genes, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. So Jesus is the word. The fourth lens is that we have to wear when we come to the scripture, is understanding the beginning and the ending of the story, which is where we're going to kind of drill in this morning. Because if you understand where the story starts and you understand where the story is going, where it's going, you understand where we are in the middle of it. Does that make sense? If you get the beginning or the end wrong, the whole story is wrong. And so the beginning of the story... Again, an echo of John 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. The darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And we talked about this passage last week. And what did, what did waters represent in the Old Testament? Does anybody remember from last week? Chaos. Evil. Spirit of God hovering over the chaos. The, the, the scene that cre the creation story brings is 
is chaos that God comes and He molds and organizes and puts together and structures and creates. So God, so we go through the story, we talked about the last week, all the things that God creates. We get to Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created human beings in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God created us in His image, which, that means a lot of things. But at the very least, at very minimally, what that means is God created us as co-creators. Okay, this is the beginning of the story. You and I were created not just to exist, but in the image of God to co-create with Him. In Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So this is the second creation account uh, in the Genesis story. You might think, what are you talking about? Genesis 1 is a creation story. Genesis 2 is a creation story. They're both, very, they're both different. They both tell it in a different way. And if you follow the reading plan, so, uh, so you have notes in here for each sermon, sermon Sunday, but in between each Sunday, there's five days of reading. And, and it'll bring you through some key points in the overall story of the Bible as you follow the reading plan. So in this, in this second account of the creation story, we see this God-breathed idea that God came and breathed breath into the nostrils of Adam. Have you ever had anybody breathe in your face before? I had my kids come downstairs the other day. Sai sits on my lap, and I go to give him a hug, and he goes, Ooh. I said, what? He's like, your breath smells like coffee. I wonder what God's breath smells like. Anyways, uh, God breathes into Adam, brings life into Adam, and we are unique in all of creation that we're created in the likeness of God. So it goes on. It says, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. So the Lord God formed from the ground the wild animals, the birds of the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to the livestock, all the birds of the sky, the wild animals, but there still was no helper just right for him. So Adam gets to name all of the animals. He's partnering with God in the creation. He gets to tend the garden. You guys see that? It's part of being made in the image of God. Can you imagine getting to name the animals? You know, the animal comes out. Duckbill platypus. You know, God's like, well, that's an interesting name. Next one comes out, armadillo. So God's like, okay, okay, Adam, you're the man. <laughs> no, actually, you are the man. You're the only one. So, uh, so and that next animal comes out, meow, meow. Adam's like, Satan? <laughs> Satan. <laughs> Only half the room's laughing. <laughs> what? What's the Genesis story trying to tell us here? The Genesis story is telling us that God has given us authority over creation. The hierarchy of Genesis 
is important. God created order out of chaos. He, he created things to work in a certain hierarchy. God, the creator, creates all of creation, and he, he puts us in between him and creation. Because he wants to partner with us in the ongoing creation of creation. So we see everything working in its natural relationship and hierarchy in the Genesis story. We see that Adam and Eve are in right relationship with God. They're walking with God in the garden. They're talking to God. There's this conversation that's happening. There's this intimacy that's happening. Adam and Eve with God, the way it was supposed to be. And as you go through the creation story, you recognize that Adam and Eve are they're created for one another. You know, in the second account of creation, how Eve was taken out of Adam's rib. And then they joined together. We talked about the last week in the, in the sex series. But they joined together and they become one flesh. That there's this unity and this harmony between the two of them. Man and man. We see that they're totally comfortable in their own skin. It, it, it says in the creation story that they were naked and felt no shame. Totally comfortable in the, their own skin. You know, they don't have to deal with insecurities. Like, like every, uh, every, every Sunday, I don't know if I should say this, but every Sunday on Saturday night, I got to ask my wife what to wear. I was like, what do I wear? It's like, you know, it's, you think, no big deal. It's like, well, it's tough to keep track of what you wear every Sunday for the whole year and not repeat yourself week after week. I only got so many clothes, right? And so, you know, I come up here like, you know, insecure, you know, what, how do I look? How do, you know, all of us have this insecurity with our, in our own skin, wondering how we look, how we're perceived. But Adam and Eve, they totally comfortable in their own skin, felt no shame. Creation. There were no thistles. The ground was, you know, they worked the ground, but, the, but they weren't battling with the ground. They were in the Garden of Eden. They were in utopia. They were in the place that God placed them to be. And so we see that all four of these dimensions are working together in harmony. Everything is in the proper order. Everything is in the proper relationship. And the Jews had a word for this, and that word is shalom. Peace. We translate it peace, but it means far more than peace. It means everything functioning in a proper way, in the way it was intended. Beautiful picture at the beginning of the story. And it's critically important, and many of you have heard me speak on this before. Why? Because the beginning of the story and understanding this actually changes the way you read the whole rest of the scriptures. In Genesis 1, verse 28, we see that the, the creation is headed somewhere. That God didn't just do creation and finish it. He started creation and invites Adam and Eve to be a part of the ongoing maintenance and development of it. So that they may rule. That they would fill the earth and subdue it. They're participating with the creator. They're co-creators in a creation that is on a trajectory. It's going somewhere. They're in har harmony in the hierarchy. They're under God. They're above creation. They're stewarding the responsibility the way they're supposed to. And you can see that hierarchy is important. If, any, if at any point they try and become God, it goes back into chaos. Chaos. 
Remember, God's bringing, us, bringing order and harmony out of chaos. Anytime they go try to become like God, we'll see in the biblical story, they're going to be their own God, go away from the way that God intended them to live, they, they bring chaos. Anytime they worship the created things instead of the creator, what happens? Chaos. This is what we see in Romans. In, in Romans it says that people have started to worship that which was created instead of the creator. What is an addiction? An addiction is actually looking to something to give you the thing that only God can give you. It's what the Bible calls, or it's what people call idolatry, worshiping something else other than God. And what does it create in your life? It creates chaos. It creates a dependency that will never deliver the thing you're looking for from it. So God creates us in this hierarchy, a way of operating with the created world and with God and our place in it. In Genesis 1 and 2, there is, you don't see that there's somewhere else. Heaven and earth are together. There's no secular and sacred. There's no heaven out there and earth down here. Everything is together. This is how the story starts. It's also how the story ends. In Revelation 21, 22, we see that there's no more death. There's healing of the nations. There's the tree of life. Remember the tree that's in the creation story is, in the, is at the end of the story as well. And we, we see Jesus in Revelation saying, I'm making all things new. If you took sin out of the Bible, you would have a four-chapter pamphlet. Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 2, 1 and 2, 2. Four chapters. But if you take out those chapters, you miss the entire storyline of everything in between. You don't know where to peg what's actually happening. You don't know how to receive what the Word is trying to tell us, where the whole thing's going. And we see that in Genesis, creation starts in a garden, and in Revelation, it ends in a city. What is a city? It's man creating function and form and organization. They're being co-creators. They're doing what they were actually created to do. So God starts creation in the garden, but we see throughout the scriptures that man actually contributes, and we see a picture at the end of the story of a city. But we have an interruption in the middle of that four-pamphlet book, don't we? And it's interrupted by this ugly word that none of us like called, everybody say it, sin. Does anybody like that word? Just, no, not so much. Sin. And we see this at the beginning of the story. In Genesis 3, before we get to Genesis 3, Genesis 5 says this, when God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. In the NIV, it says, they were made in God's likeness. And God had some commandments for them to keep the structure, to keep the relationship right. Remember what, what the commandment was that he gave them? Anybody? Don't eat from the tree. Okay, and so that, that's how I would have answered that for most of my life. And I'm, I'm going to come back to this in a second, but 
That is one of the commandments he gave, but the first commandment he gave Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply. And then the second one was be free to eat from any tree in the garden. And then the third one was don't eat from that tree, just that one. And, so, and we have a narrative in our head that we think that the, sometimes the only commandment God gave us was a rule of what not to do. And how often do we live kind of in that assumption? You know, the Word of God is, is all these things that we're not supposed to do. In fact, that's what happens when you take the beginning and the end, that, that four-story pamphlet out. So God gives them a commandment, go f- forth, multiply, eat of any fruit, uh, but don't eat of that tree because God gives responsibility and choice to his co-creators. It couldn't be any other way. And we see the serpent, this deceitful animal comes on the scene and he tempts them and he says, you know, eat of this free, tr- eat of this free, tree, fruit. That was a combination of tree and fruit. Did you see that? <clears throat> I find when you have so much to say, you just start combining words and it makes all the, eat, don't eat, or he says, eat of the fruit on this tree. And if you do it, your eyes are going to be open. The only reason God doesn't want you to eat it is because God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be what? Like God. Wait a second. I thought, didn't we just read that they were like God? We see that in Genesis 1.27 that they were made in the image of God. We see it in Genesis 5 that they were created in the likeness of God. And then the serpent comes in Genesis 3 and says, hey, if you eat this, you could actually be like God. What's happening here? The serpent comes and convinces Adam and Eve that they aren't what they already were. The serpent comes and convinces them that God's held out on them, that they have a lack and they need to go search for that lack, for the fulfillment of that lack in other avenues other than which God created them to live. Outside of shalom, outside of the proper order of things, the proper hierarchy of things, the way that God set it up. It's like, go out there and you'll actually find that you can be like God. They're already created in the likeness of God. So what happens? Serpent plants the seed of lackness. The, 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 The serpent plants the seed that Adam and Eve respond to and the result is a breaking of shalom. And I think this makes all the difference in the world because you talk to people today about sin. Who wants to talk about sin? And sometimes we even identify ourselves as sinners. But sin is shalom-breaking. Anything that actually contributes to the breaking of shalom is sin. And this is why we start at the beginning of the story, because if you start in Genesis 3, you're a sinner. If you start in Genesis 1, you were created in the image of God. And that changes the entire story. When we understand shalom, where, we, where things started, what God wants to do, we can look at the problem of sin in a new way, in a new light. I have disrupted shalom with my neighbor, with myself, with the earth, with my God. 
Sin is rebellion against the hierarchy, the way that God structured and ordered things out of chaos. And it's choosing to live in chaos rather than in the proper hierarchy that God created for us. We're saying, God, you're in my seat. I want that seat. Sin is participating in anything which leads to death, corruption, and the breakdown of shalom. Sin, the Greek word for sin in the New Testament is, it's an archery term that means missing the mark. Sin is an omission. It's actually giving up our mandate to be co-creators with God to bring shalom to earth. And it's, it's a sin of omission of not participating and doing the work that God created us to do. Sin isn't just the things you do. Sin is all the things that we don't do to keep shalom together. Because shalom takes work. So sin creates chaos. It's the antithesis of what God's doing in creation. And this is why the word repentance is so important. And the word repentance means turning around and going back to the beginning. In all of our evangelistic efforts, too often we start in Genesis 3 and not Genesis 1. You know, I remember growing up and going to camp and the starting point was, you're a sinner. And that's the good news. Is that really the good news? How, How different is it when the story is, you were created in the likeness and image of God. You were created for a purpose. And you actually forfeited that purpose. You rebelled against God and you broke shalom. Have you broken shalom with God? Have you broken shalom with other people? Have you broken shalom with yourself, with creation? And all we go around the, the church and we could all say, yes, 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 yes. Why? Because when we understand where the story starts and what we're actually talking about, we can find ourselves in the story. In Genesis 3, 15, it says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and this is God speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head, and, he will, and you will strike his heel. The reason I highlighted that is because Jesus, a prophecy of Jesus is all the way back in Genesis 3. Christotelic. Jesus is referred to here. Jesus was going to come and was going to crush the serpent. He was actually going to bring order out of chaos because the serpent was bringing chaos. And then we see in John 19, John, the guy who was in love with this idea of creation and new creation, says in John 19, Jesus, after his resurrection, says what? Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Then he what? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Wow. John is echoing the creation story with the new creation story. And there's echoes of this all throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, Mary mistakens Jesus for what after the resurrection? A gardener. The Greek word for gardener there means wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He's the new, he's doing what Adam never did. He's the fullness of creation. This is the new creation. 
John, weaving creation in the story. And then what does that mean for us? This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become what? A new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, the things that we've done to break shalom, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation, bringing everything back together so that we are Christ's ambassadors. We are made in the image of God. We are living out the destiny for which he created us, and God is making his appeal to the world through us. The beginning and the ending. Where and how you begin the story and where and how you end the story determine what story you're telling. If you start with Genesis 3, the point of the story becomes about going to heaven when you die. The point of Ge- if you start the story in Genesis 3, it's been, how can I escape this? If you start the story in Genesis 1, you realize that God's home that he created you and I to inhabit is the earth. The story you're telling begins in Genesis 3. The central issue becomes the removal of sin. If the story you're telling begins in Genesis 1, the central issue is the restoration of shalom and the restoration of your and I's vocation to participate with God in what He wants to do in our world. Genesis 3 is not how the story begins and it's also not how the story ends. You and I were created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, to be the ambassadors of God, to be be His image bearers in a world that desperately needs us to take back the responsibility for which we were created. The problem is that we can't bring shalom ourselves. And that's why Jesus came. That's why in Genesis 3 we already see the telescope view of the telos, the telic, the telescope, you know, you can see where, where the word telescope comes from. Looking down to the goal of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, we already see that in Genesis 3. God knew that we would need a Messiah, that we would need a Savior, that we would need a new Adam, that we would need to be made new to participate in the new creation. And so he comes to breathe life into you and I today to get us back on track. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Maybe, maybe you've never actually invited the Holy Spirit to fill you. Adam was not alive until God came and breathed life into his nostrils. The New Testament paints this picture that we are dead in our sin, that the result of shalom is actually death, and that we are all in need of resurrection. And Jesus knew that. And so after his resurrection, he breathes his Holy Spirit into his disciples, into us. And do you, do you have chaos in your life that you need order from? Do you have shalom breaking in your life in one of those four directions that you need to repent and return to your vocation? Then you need the Holy Spirit to bring alive what is dead. You need to be forgiven of all the shalom-breaking things that you and I do. And it's actually quite simple. You just invite Jesus to fill you, for His Spirit to fill you and to forgive you. And for His Spirit to make you into His likeness. That's what the word discipleship means, becoming a disciple, becoming like Jesus. 
And so I'm going to pray as we close here, as the band is going to lead us in this last song. This last song talks about how we could just, we could just sit here and take it easy and do nothing, but actually God has called us for a purpose. I invite you to close your eyes. I'm just going to invite you to lift your hand. If, have you done any shalom breaking that you need forgiveness for? Put up your hand. If you're honest with yourself, your hand should probably be up. <laughs> Is there any chaos in your life that you need God to bring some order to? You can put up your hand. You and I need the life that only comes from God. So I invite you to open your hands as just a posture of receiving. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of breath, for the gift of your spirit. Lord, we thank you that you have actually created us to play a part in your story. Lord, we thank you for your death and resurrection that invades our story that brings life out of death. And I pray, Lord, for every person in this room that desires for you to actually take your rightful place as their creator and their rightful place as co-creators with you in what you're doing, that you would breathe your Holy Spirit into them. And I invite you even to just to pray that in your heart and your mind right now, that Jesus, fill me with your Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Bring what is dead to life. Bring to order what is chaotic. Forgive me of all the ways that I've broken shalom with you and others in the world around me. May I actually start to live out my destiny as a human being created in your likeness for your glory and our joy. Amen. As you're worshiping, someone shared a word with me that they, or a picture they, um, felt like God was impressing on their mind as that we were worshiping that song and they said they saw a picture of us as a church, as an army standing together being ready for God to lead us where he wants to lead us. And so it's one thing when we actually discover our vocation as individuals. Something powerful happens when we discover a vocation as a community. That God has called us to actually bring shalom wherever we are, wherever we go, wherever feet go, your workplace, your home, your communities, those relationships that are broken, those extended family members, that you are made in the image of God to actually bring order out of chaos. And that's actually the calling that we have as a church community as well. If, uh, if for the first time this morning you've you have actually taken that step and saying, you know, God, I want to live for you. Forgive me, I want to live for you. Um, I would invite you to talk to somebody, come to a prayer team, prayer team member at the end. Uh, you come and chat with me. <clears throat> and a great first step is actually a starting point week one. It's all about knowing God. And so we invite you to come out to uh, knowing God and, and just learning about what that means to, to actually grow in your relationship with Jesus. Uh, that class is available for, uh, for everybody. Let me just close in prayer together. Lord, we thank you that uh, you don't only call us as individuals, you call us as a community. 
Um, and Lord, would we be an army that would follow your leading, that would be filled with your spirit, that would be empowered to actually participate in bringing shalom to a very chaotic and broken world that we find ourselves in. Lord, I also know that you cannot give away what, we, what you don't have. And so I pray that those who are experiencing, sh- experiencing chaos in their own lives, experiencing darkness, experiencing conflict, that you would breathe your peace, your shalom into them, that your Holy Spirit would actually do a work in their hearts, that you would remove that chaos. whether that's a brokenness that maybe we have with ourselves or with others or with you or with our world. Lord, that you would begin the work in us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. So please bring your books back next week. Uh, participate in the reading plan. It'll help give you an overview of kind of the scripture story, fill in the gaps that we can't on a Sunday morning. Uh, it costs a lot of money to print those books, and so we don't want to keep printing them every week. Uh, so please hang on to that and keep bring it back for the next 13 weeks. We'll see you guys next week.